Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Descent Channel (laughs) edition of Slate Money, which is normally your guide to the business and finance news of the week, but this week is going to be about improbability and Annie Duke. Annie Duke, welcome to Slate Money. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. Anna Shemansky is here as normal. Yeah, hello. Emily Peck of the Huffington Post is here as normal, but Annie Duke is here and this yeah. this makes this a banner week for slate <laughs> money um we're very very excited to have you now um introduce yourself you have a book and you're famous for many different reasons but oh gosh i always ask other people to introduce me because i never know what to say about myself so annie duke is the <laughs> author of five books at least four of which she's actually read yes <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was there was an autobiography which was not really written by you and you may not have actually even read. Correct. And then you wrote a four hundred and fifty book page four hundred and fifty page book about how to play poker. Mm-hmm. It's called Decide to Play Great Poker. It's actually taking a decision making kind of like cognitive science approach to learning the game of poker. And then, okay, that's. That's pretty awesome. And then you wrote two more books about poker. Yeah, I decided I hadn't said enough in those 450 <laughs> pages. Um, and the reason why people read your books on poker is because you are an amazing poker player. Yeah, well, I retired in 2012, but I played for professionally for 18 years. And I did. I won a World Series of Poker bracelet and the Tournament of Champions. And I was the only woman to win the NBC National Heads Up Championship and NBC is is like the television channel. Yeah, they they had this. They would air this very big Heads Up, which is one on one, which is 
an unusual form of poker, but um, they had a big tournament that had a bracket like the March Madness bracket, but it was it was for poker players, and I I happen to have won that. So yeah, so I, I was a I was a professional poker player for a long time. And then you gave it all up, and you kept on writing books. And your first post poker book is still vaguely poker related. It's called Thinking and Bets, but it is mu- it's more about taking that kind of thinking and mindset and using it for for broader decision making. Yeah. So so what people kind of didn't know about me, it's like. Uh, actually, someone suggested to me this is like particle wave theory. Like when you're obs- when you're observed, you become one or the other. So it's weird because poker was on television. So people observed me as a poker player. So they didn't know some other things about me that were sort of a, a more complete picture. So I actually started off my life at UPenn getting my PhD in cognitive science. Right at the end, as I was supposed to go out and become a professor, I got sick. That's what caused me to take the left turn into poker, mainly because I needed money during my year off. I didn't have my fellowship anymore. So it's like, oh, how do I pay the bills? Um, I fell in love with the game of poker and I did that exclusively for eight years. But then in 2002, I started to bring the two together when I realized that playing poker was a really good actual laboratory for studying the way we make decisions, particularly when there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, of a probabilistic nature. Um, and I started like coaching and consulting and talking about decision strategy as it related to that in parallel for 10 years before I retired from poker. And actually, when I was thinking about that humongous poker book, I knew I wanted to write two books, one which was poker from the standpoint of kind of decision science and one was decision science informed by poker. So there you go. And I think that this is incredibly relevant to the world of finance, because actually, as I was reading your book, I kept being like, this keeps reminding me of a lot of Howard Marks memos on risk. And then I turned <laughs> yes. the book over and I'm like, Howard blurred the book. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Exactly. Howard, well, Howard it, is Anna's former boss? Uh, no, no. Oh. Well, he was. I worked at Oak Tree. He's the owner of Oak Tree. I didn't work directly for him. But. Yeah, he was your boss's boss. boss. Yes, he, is my, he was my boss's boss. Yes. And he has a book coming out. He does on cycles. Yes, yes. yes. exactly. So um, let's get into the book. I mean, I thought it was just a fascinating, and I feel like I'm excited to apply it to my actual real life. And, oh, um, thank you. Some of it, I because as journalists, I think some of the things you talk about are things that are built into to journalism, like um, considering all the like you make an argument, but then you're like, okay, what are the nastiest readers going to object to in this? And you know what mm-hmm. what is the other side here? And considering all that, I was I was like, yeah, I got that. But then. There were some other strategies, um, short like the short-term thinking and making decisions based on what you want right away um, that I thought were just so applicable to my my actual life and not just my journalism life. So um, all of this is to say, can you give sort of like um, a big picture kind of what the book is about and how it, how it can help people kind of? Yeah. So so basically what the book is about is that we, we spend a lot of time trying to be certain of things like we you know when we make a decision we we feel like we need to know how it's going to turn out and that creates a whole bunch of problems first of all uh, we don't make very good decisions because we're not considering kind of the whole slate of the ways that things could happen we're very reluctant to think about how often each of those things will happen because we sort of think like there's a right answer or a wrong answer to that as opposed to the idea that just thinking about it gets you a long way and then after the fact 
when things happen, we totally lose sight of the fact that there were many, many possible things that could have happened beforehand. And so we get into this kind of like, I told you so. Why didn't I see that coming? This this is the thing which really annoyed me in like the sort of two months after Trump's election mm-hmm. yeah, was like the eight million articles coming out going like, why did we get it wrong? Why, you know, right. what was the reason for this? As though it was certain all along that he was going to be elected, when in fact, all along it was incredibly improbable. Well, well so actually, it, it was kind of interesting because if you looked at um, Nate Silver in the last week, like the week leading up to the election, it was about 65 35. So he had Trump winning 35% of the time. And then after Trump won, everybody was like, they had it so wrong. How could, as if 35% meant zero. And what I tell people is, okay, I've got a coin. It's going to land heads 65% of the time and tails 35% of the time. And would you like to bet your life on heads? And they're like, what? No, 35% of the time it's going to land tails. And I said, yes, because that's a lot. Of course, you wouldn't bet your net worth on that. But this but, is but no, the but idea. Point, the point is no one would then, if it does turn up tails, no one is then going How to go like, like, why did it turn up <laughs> tails? Like, I don't, let's go back and interrogate all of the reasons why it turned up tails. It's like, no, it's just basically right. sometimes it turns up tails. And this is important, too. And I think this is something you, you speak quite a bit about, this resulting. Yes. And this idea that... Even if a decision turns out to have a good outcome, that doesn't mean it was a good decision. This is something right. investing you can say. You can make a bad investment, but luck makes it turn out. Similar the opposite. And I think going back to maybe thinking about you know, Trump in terms of how did people – what was the statistical analysis that led to Nate Silver's predictions? Those were very sound, whereas some of the people who said they thought Trump was going to win were like – I went to an event and people were really excited about Trump. And should, <laughs> and you right. actually hear people saying, oh, well, we should rely far more on emotion and going to these like qualitative. It's like, no, actually, this was just, as you said, 35 percent of the time. Yeah. The, 35 percent chance. I, I think this is actually a really big problem because when we think about the problem with fake news, this misunderstanding about sort of the probabilistic nature of the future and what is a poll and what is a forecast actually creates a really big problem. So a poll is like you're taking sort of a mock vote of that day. It's asking for people's opinions that day. And then that's actually an input. It's data into a forecast that then tells you the percentage of time that someone's going to win or lose based on sort of a set of polls. So like if if it's five months before an election and Clinton's 60 percent and Trump's 40 percent, I'm going to have a much narrower forecast of the percentage of the time I think that Clinton's going to win that if I take that same poll and it's a minute before everybody votes, at which point I'm going to be almost 100 percent because it's going to be 60-40. So it's just an input. So I saw an article uh, recently that made my head explode that said it was actually from 2016, right before the our presidential election. It said the polls had it much better on Brexit than the betting markets did. As if those, because the polls on Brexit were like super close, but the betting markets had it pretty wide. And that's because there was enough of a spread right before the election for the betting markets to feel like Remain was going to win. Plus, they were heavily actioned in London, where to your point, everyone you talked to was like, hey, I think Remain's going to win. But when people say things like that, that just opens it up to it's fake news. The polls are fake news. Data is fake news. Experts don't know what they're talking about. It's all fake news. Mm-hmm. And. As a Londoner, I can tell you that what you ask people to do in this book, this thinking in bets, is something which is much more common in the UK. We have betting shops on the corner and not just betting shops on sports, but betting shops on everything. You can walk into 
Ladbrokes or, or any other betting store in the UK and say, I want to bet that Jeremy Corbyn is going to be the next prime minister, and they will give you odds on that. And people do this all the time. And that kind of, and that's the discipline that you are trying to encourage people to have, not necessarily to actually bet money on these events, but when you start talking about um, what you think is going to happen, to start thinking in terms of how much money would you bet and what kind of odds would you need to place a bet on that happening. And when you start asking yourself that question, then you start having a much clearer view of what your own beliefs are. I also really loved um, the way you took apart in the resulting um, concept, the way you took apart how people are so hard on themselves when they actually make a good decision, but the outcome doesn't come out the way they want it. And the, the P. Carroll example that maybe you could talk about in the beginning sure, where, yeah. you know, he calls this play and then is just like excoriated by everyone. I mean, the, the sports media really comes off badly in the book <laughs> um, for making a bad decision. But um, and it reminded me of, you know, in your own life, it 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 gave me this feeling like of greater empathy. So you're not like, I can't believe I did that. Like, that was the worst mistake I ever made. Like, oh, how could I think like that? But um, it's all about how you view the results and how you take apart and analyze your decision making process. It, it's a much more um, accepting vision of how people are thinking and behaving. You know, I'm so glad that you said that because, I mean, I've done a lot of interviews about this and people haven't actually really pointed out the self-compassion component. Yeah, that's, that's exactly book. It, self-compassion. Um, and it really is about self-compassion. It's about reminding ourselves, which really the fact that you can bet on anything in London kind of does, that there's many, many possible futures, but only one can occur. And we can't lose sight of that after the fact. So what happened to Pete Carroll was it's in 2015, Super Bowl 49, as, as I'm sure most people will remember, it's the last play of the Super Bowl, 26 seconds left. They're on the Patriots' one-yard line. Um, and Pete Carroll has one timeout, and they're down by four. So obviously they have to, within this 26 seconds, they have to figure out how to score a touchdown. Now, Pete Carroll does something uh, pretty unexpected, which is he calls a pass play. Everybody's thinking he's going to have Russell Wilson handed off to Marshawn Lynch, one of the greatest short yardage running backs of all time. He'll just try to barrel through the Patriots line. We'll see what happens. So instead, he calls the pass play spectacular failure as... Malcolm Butler intercepts the ball. And in the game, Chris Collingsworth says, you know, I can't believe this call. How could he make this call? This is idiotic. All right. He's making that in-game call. But even the pundits the next day, after they had some time to think about it, it was some range between uh, worst call in Super Bowl history and worst call in football history. (laughs) Now, you guys will like this. There were two places where you saw some contrarian analysis of that. One was on 538 with Benjamin Morris and one was on Slate. Um, So who were saying, hey, not so fast. There were a lot of ways that that play could have turned out. Uh, Just because it turned out as as an interception doesn't necessarily mean that the decision was bad. Let's take a little bit of a look at that. And the one piece of information that I think is key to know is that the chances of an interception were between 1% or 2%. Wow. So let's hope that we don't say something's a horrible decision because like a one percenter happens to him. Mm -hmm. So just like, by the way, we don't want to say something's a good decision just because you know, a one percenter Mm -hmm. hit. You mean like like Donald Trump's decision to run for president? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like I actually say to your point earlier, like we sort of think about this problem of how do I deal with the fact that I played a really good hand and I played it well and I still lost? I think the bigger problem is how do I deal with the fact that I played a poor hand 
and I didn't play it particularly well, and I still won. Because I think that's where we get into a lot of trouble because mm. we just sort of assume like when things works at work out, like, oh, look at how smart we are. And we're missing a lot of learning opportunities from right. that. And mm-hmm. this is also right. like whenever you see um, you go to any conference and they're like, look at all of these rich and successful people. And they'll come on stage and tell you, like, if you do what I did, you'll become rich and successful. <laughs> and you're like, no, like if 100 people did what you did, like one of them would become rich and successful. Right, There's right. no can I just say that is one of my greatest pet peeves, um, especially there's this like class of articles that are like 10 things successful people do in the morning as <laughs> yeah. if like if you meditate at 7 a.m. you will become a billionaire or whatever. It's really aggravates me. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, I, I saw one recently, which was like uh, something about um, kids doing better. I can't remember exactly what it was. It was like kids. Oh, kids who eat fish get higher grades in school. <laughs> Please stop. And I was like, and so they were saying, you need to feed your kids fish. And I was like, what? Exactly. That's the or only possible from a conclusion. Family, so yeah. Someone, happy someone, eat fish. Yeah. Yeah. Or like have parents who like fish who also have right. really high IQs so that you can inherit yeah. their high, or maybe people who eat, oh, and then also there was another thing about they sleep more, which apparently was because they ate fish. But <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, it was just but this morass. And I think that we make these these kinds of mistakes like all the time. Mm. And if I were to say like, OK, if I, there were a stage of people who were super wealthy and I wanted to follow what they did, I'd be like, OK, uh, let me figure out how I can be born when you were to the parents that you were yes, born exactly. to and happen to have like not gotten sick when I was a child and yes. have the trajectory that no, I, I did. I feel, like, well, I feel like the main lesson I get from looking at the lives of billionaires is the way to become super rich and successful is to have a private jet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. That is what I have learned. (laughs) Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So, Annie, I want to go back to this idea about compassion um, and the idea that just because you had a bad result doesn't mean you made a bad decision. Um, Because one of the things which I find myself doing a lot of the time is kicking myself um, for doing something which was objectively just really stupid. And I look back on it and I'm like, what was I thinking? And the answer is invariably, I wasn't thinking. That if I had taken 10 seconds to stop and think about it, you know, thinking in bets or thinking anyway, just using my brain, using what Danny Kahneman calls system two to actually stop and think about it, I would never have done that. But I was just on autopilot and I went ahead and did something really stupid because my sort of, you know, rat brain just like was in control. Um, And that is something which we all, well, a lot of people, certainly anyone who's read Danny Kahneman knows that we have this bias. We have this way of just like acting on autopilot and not thinking. Um, and acting on t- autopilot and not thinking is, is super dangerous. And it's something which is extremely dangerous if you're playing poker, which you do for like hours and hours on the end. So the m- number one question which I had for you was, 
How do you stop yourself from doing that? Mm. <laughs> I, so the, the first answer uh, is I, I don't. I stop myself from doing it a little bit less of the time. So, so I, I think that what we want to remember is that you know, to the point of Kahneman, these things are very in d- deeply embedded in in kind of like the brainware that we have. And so we're not just some, somehow like going to take our brains offline and like install a new operating <laughs> system and then like we're good to go. So it's understanding that when you make small changes, when you when you stop yourself from making those decisions a little bit more often, when you uh, uh, catch the mistake a little bit more often when you realize, oh, you know, when you're sitting there going, oh, I can't believe how unfair that was. And then you stop and you go, well, hold on a second. Uh, that's a trigger for me. Like, let me think about that. Maybe that's not so unfair. And you catch that a little bit more often. You're going to do so much better in life because it's like compounding interest, like these small changes. Like if you're doing 1% or 2% better, that's going to compound over your lifetime. I think I say in the book, you're like if old Annie is catching five of these errors and new Annie is catching 10 of these errors, we could look at it as new Annie is like 90% of the time she's failing. Or you can say new Annie is doing twice as well as old Annie, which I think is the better way to think about it. So that's number one is like, don't have this goal that somehow you're going to eliminate these kinds of behaviors. But number two, I think the best way to do it is to hold yourself accountable to some process. Because if you think about what betting does, Betting, first of all, makes uncertainty come to the fore. So, for example, like one of the things that I've been using lately is when people say the Democrats are going to take the House in November, I say to them, well, what would happen if I asked you if you want to bet on that? And all of a sudden they say, well, I didn't say 100 percent sure. Mm. What I what I really mean is and then they start to think like, well, hold on a second, because it's a really long time away. And what might happen in the meantime that I can't even predict? And what information don't I have? What are the quality of the polls that I'm looking at? You know, there's an issue of districting, right? Like, even if the national polls are saying Democrats are really far ahead, you know, what are these districts that are gerrymandered due to the system? You start asking yourself all of these questions, which is just really about two things, luck and what don't I know, which are the two sources of uncertainty. So what betting does is it holds you accountable to a more rational process where If I'm thinking in a biased way where I just want to believe that I have certainty around the beliefs that I have, I'm going to do very poorly in the bet. But obviously, we can't go around challenging each other to a bet. So how can you kind of create that accountability separately? And what I did as a poker player was I had a group of people that I was accountable. We made agreement that when I went and talked to them um, about, for example, hands that I played, I couldn't just go up and say, I can't believe I lost this hand because that guy was an idiot. That there wasn't really anything useful in in saying that. That what I was going to get rewarded for was saying, you know, I played this hand and I think that I really got it wrong. I think that maybe there was a better way to play it. I think I might have made a mistake about the way that I was thinking about what that person's hand was. Can I talk through the hand with you? And when there was actually real content to what we were saying, when you were really trying to truth seek and figure out sort of why you're wrong, not why you're right, that's what was getting rewarded. I feel like... That's the easy kind of error to fix. Like I thought about it, I made a mistake, and there was a better way to think about it, and then I wouldn't have made a mistake. And I think the harder type of error to fix is I didn't think about it, and so I made a mistake. But, well, I think that I think this going back a little bit to finance <laughs> yeah. and how this this relates. I would say in in finance, essentially everything is a bet. Yeah, to a certain extent, exactly. right? So that's why right. it's so relevant. But I've seen that a lot of the better investors 
understand that they're working in uncertainty. They're not these incredibly confident people who say, I know everything. They're the ones that are actually like, no, I can't possibly know everything. So I'm going to set up a structure Mm-hmm. understanding my weaknesses. I'm also going to have certain essentially safety mechanisms, whether it's that you know you have some analysis of where you think intrinsic value is. And you're like, look, depending on like where the price is, I'm going to buy or sell and I'm not going to allow myself to get as emotional or, you know, and I think at least in investment, that is kind of where you understand that you're not perfect. And even in the moment you're going to make bad decisions because you're not thinking. So you have to set up a process beforehand so that you are stopping yourself from doing that. That's what Annie has well, in the book. She you, you have several really fun examples that I enjoyed, such as the classic, like if you have a problem eating ice cream at midnight, don't have ice cream in your house. Like constrain yourself before, constrain future Emily from eating the ice cream by present Emily buying the apples instead of the ice cream. Or like you set a a limit for yourself. You can only lose a certain amount of money and then you have to walk away and like you have no choice. Like remove choice, you know, from future you basically. Like set up these rules. Yeah. So this this all kind of goes into time traveling. So with the group, as yes, yes, exactly. One of my favorite things with the group. One of the ways that you deal with your problem of like I just didn't think about it is that when you have a really good group structure set up, then those people are going to actually query you on that. Well, why weren't you thinking about it? What did you miss? Why didn't you even bother to even make a decision? Why were you just going on your gut and not even giving it two thoughts? So that actually creates an interesting time travel exercise, which is now in the moment of the decision, you know you're going to have to answer to the group later so that you're sort of traveling into the future where you're having that conversation where the person's saying like, well, why didn't you do this? And now you can actually get it up wow. in front of the decision. So it's not it's not the time travel backwards which do, which does it. It's the time, time travel, travel forwards. forwards which does it. And so that also brings up the Ulysses contracts, things like loss limits, mm-hmm. for example, or triggers that if the market's doing this, I must do this and not think about it in the moment. Because what we recognize is that in the moment, we're very good at fooling ourselves. So what we want to do is say, we know there's a lot of different ways that the future can turn out. Let me actually think about that. Let me think about the uncertainty and all the different ways it can turn out. And particularly, let me think about the places where I might step on landmines. Now, once I've done that, I can start to create structure around avoiding those landmines because I know in those moments I'm not going to be particularly rational. So you brought up the example of a loss limit. What I know is that when I'm losing, um, my limbic system is pretty hot. <laughs> And maybe my prefrontal cortex is not working so well. I mean, we all know this when you like really feel like, oh, I can't even think straight. Yes. When you're really emotional, you can't even think straight. And one of the things that gets us to be emotional is when we're losing. We don't like it. We feel like it's an attack on our identity, attack on our competence. And what I will be able to do is when you have uncertainty, I can now reason around why I'm losing in a way that I can't if I'm playing chess, which if I'm losing at chess to you, there's no way for me to be like, I'm getting so unlucky. (laughs) I should keep playing Felix in chess. It's no Felix is a better chess player than me because it doesn't have the same amount of uncertainty in the game. But in poker and in investing and in most things in life, there's all sorts of uncertainty. So what can I do when I'm losing? It's not that I'm playing poorly or making bad decisions. It's that I'm just getting really unlucky against all these people who are terrible players. So therefore, I'm just going to re-up and I'm going to keep playing. Now, so I recognize that when I'm in that emotional state, I'm not going to be very good at judging. Am I losing because 
things just kind of aren't going my way or am I losing because I'm making terrible decisions? So if I look ahead into the future and I see that that's likely to happen, I can set a loss limit and I can say, if I've lost a certain amount of money, I know I'm not going to be in my right mind. There is no way I'm going to be decision fit. So let me make sure that I can't make a decision at that time. You know, you can do that with like, for example, you can, there's all sorts of ways you can do this. Like if you're trying to write an article, you can shut your internet off. Because you know, like, ugh, oh, in those God, moments like, of lag. It's getting Morozov, Morozov safe. <laughs> he, he literally, he would put his cable modem in the safe and put, like, a timer on the <laughs> yes. safe. So that, oh, my God. Um, but I need to talk to you about, because the number one guy right now who's famous for making, like, unbelievably bad decisions is... Elon Musk, who is going off on Twitter and just, you know, calling people pedophiles and saying that he's going to take his company public at 400, private at $420 a share and basically doing all of these things, which if he stopped to think for one minute, he would never do. And he's doing it. And one of the um, more credible explanations for why he's doing this, if you look at his New York Times interview, is that he's not getting any sleep. Mm. Um, and he is weirdly proud of the fact that he's not getting any sleep. And yes. he's like, I'm working 20 hours a day to try and fix the production line or whatever. Right. And we know empirically that we make incredibly bad decisions when we are operating on very little sleep. Um, so the question I have for you as a poker player is that poker games are legendary for going on like deep into the night and for people operating in these poker games on very little sleep. So again, how do you do that? Ah, well, okay. So first of all, actually, there's really great data on this sleep issue. So there's all sorts of data, uh, data about like different ways that sort of cognitive stress can cause an actual drop in IQ. And losing a night's sleep is actually equivalent to about a 13-point IQ drop, which I don't know. Elon Musk that is That explains so much about <laughs> right. me, Elon. Right, exactly. Yeah. But also things like um, <sighs> feeling ex- excluded from a friend group can do that to you. It puts a lot of stress on you. Um, poverty, um, scarcity. There's a great book called Scarcity. I'd highly recommend people read. And these all sort of cause these drops in IQ. So this actually comes to another... Um, type of Ulysses contract, right? So this idea of sort of binding your hands because you look into the future and you say this is really bad. So yes, poker poker games are very legendary for going through the night. Really good poker players figure this out and they say, so therefore I'm going to limit how much I play. Now the only time you can't limit the number of hours that you're playing at a time is when you're in a tournament, but then everybody's in the same boat. So we're all having the same kind of drop in IQ at the same time. And hopefully what the way that I can control that is I can say, so then what I'm going to do is make sure that my physical stamina is really good so that maybe I can withstand it a little bit better than you. So but you literally both... like go to the gym and stuff like that. Right. So go to the gym, make sure you're eating really healthy, all of the, that. But so, so you know, because we're all going to be playing for 14 hours or whatever. But in a cash game where you have the freedom to leave or not leave, you can basically just say like, I will not play past six to eight hours because I understand in advance that I'm going to have this decline. And I also understand to the point of Elon Musk that I won't realize it in the moment that maybe I should be restraining myself from actually making a decision in this moment when I'm sleep deprived. So again, you sort of do the same thing. You say, I won't lose more than a certain amount of money and I won't play more than a certain amount of time. This made me think a little bit about investment banking. (laughs) And when you're an investment banking analyst, people say, 
they work 100 hours and they do. I mean, it even though it's shifted a little bit when you work the hours, it's just traditionally that you when the analysts are the ones that are actually doing all all of the modeling and they're just spending hours and hours. And often what happens is the people who are giving them the work don't actually give them the work until 7 or 8 p.m. And then they're like, well, I need it before tomorrow morning. And it always struck me as a bit of an odd system because essentially then you're relying on data that's being created by people who aren't sleeping. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, interns, you know, in, in in medicine, like doctors are famous for operating on incredibly small amounts of sleep. And you're like, that is the last person that I want to operate right. on small amounts of sleep. Right. You know, I think that that's I think that's an interesting problem. And also for the analysts as well, that you get into this kind of thing of like, well, this is how I did it. I had to go through this trial by fire. I got hazed. So therefore, in order for you to do this thing as well, you must go through the same hazing. Whereas it would be quite smart for someone to say, I'd like analysts with sleep or <laughs> I'd like a doctor with sleep. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps we should stop this cycle of madness now that we actually understand how lack of sleep actually affects your ability to make good decisions. I, I was that- also thinking with Elon Musk and his bad decision making and lack of sleep. Another thing that maybe is going on behind the scenes with a lot of um, leaders like Musk is something you kind of get into in the book where it's like you need people to truth tell to you. Yes. You need someone to be like, yo, Elon. And and he does have people like in the media telling him, you know, get more sleep like Felix told him. Um, <laughs> but maybe, he listens to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he doesn't have a, a dissent channel or, you know, people like your group to sit down with and like break the news. You know what I mean? And can you talk a little bit or can we go off yeah. topic a second for yeah. to talk about this how important that is? Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. So this this actually isn't off topic at all. I mean, one of the problems that we have it, with our own beliefs, with our own predictions, is that we kind of only know the things that we know. We only have the hypotheses that we've already thought of. We, I've only ever interacted with the world in a particular way, and the world interacts with me in a particular way that's say, different than the world might interact with you, Felix. You know, It's going to interact with you in a different way, and you're going to interact with the world in a different way, and you have different experiences. And so one of the things that we'd like to do when we're sort of tackling this uncertainty thing is, first of all, have people who can sort of check how much luck we think is in something, because we do need to definitely understand that, right? We want to kind of understand what percentage of this is going to be in our control in terms of what the outcome is going to be, number one. But number two, we want someone to fill in the blanks. Remember, we have this information asymmetry problem. So once we sort of think about things as like, would I be willing to bet on this? Or um, how sure am I of this? Why do I think I might be wrong? You actually have to go ask people why you might be wrong, which means that when we form our group, our decision-making group, one of the jobs is for you guys to tell me when I'm wrong, for you guys to sort of check my bias for me. Because we all can see when other people are biased just fine. It's just that we can't see it in ourselves. And so we need to sort of do that for each other. But you have to do that in an active way because it kind of breaks the normal social contract. You know, when you're talking to somebody and they say something that you kind of don't agree with, very often, like if you're at a cocktail party, for example, you're not going to you're not going to correct them on it. You're just going to sort of nod and be like, eh, and sort of move on. Because it's it disagreeing with someone, telling them they might have it wrong, telling them that you, you have a different perspective isn't part of the normal social context. Tell the, so tell the, Lauren, Mo- the Lauren Montag example with David Letterman. Oh, yeah. I think that illustrates the point so well. So, so you okay? need to – right. So you need to sort of actively redo what the social contract is. So 
I, I tell a story in a book about. Um, so let me just say, I, I don't, I didn't watch The Hills, but I happened to be <laughs> watching neither. David Letterman one night. I was like in a hotel room, and I saw this spectacular interview where uh, Lauren Conrad, who I knew a little Lauren bit Conrad. about, yeah, just from like Us Weekly on an airplane or something. Um, she was on, and she was saying like, "Oh my God, I have so much drama, drama, this drama, that. Heidi's mean to me. Spencer's mean to me. Adrena was mean to me. You know, <laughs> Brody was mean to me." <laughs> Um, I see a theme. <laughs> yes. Um, all these things are happening to me. And David Letterman stops and says, well, that that raises the question. Do you think it might be you? <laughs> Perfect. And you should just see like, I mean, and she's what? You know, and then and then he sort of he kind of realizes his mistake. Right. So he says, oh, OK, I must have violated the social contract here. So let me try to fix this. I mean, so this is what he says. He says, well. Wait, let me give you an example from my own life. My, throughout my whole life, I'd be like, that person's an idiot, and that person's an idiot, and that person's an idiot. And one day I thought to myself, could all these people actually be idiots? Maybe I'm the idiot. And it turns out I was. To which Lauren Conrad replies, are you calling me an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the next day it was like, I think, like, Gawker was like, David Letterman calls Lauren Conrad an idiot. <laughs> And the problem was that he broke the normal social contract. He was actually giving her a really good piece of advice. Like if he I would want him in my decision pod. Yeah, this actually made me think a little bit about Ray Dalio and yes. radical transparency. I'm just saying that. Like, yeah, right. yeah exactly. Kind of what he's saying is this idea of trying to allow people to break that contract mm-hmm. at work. Right. Mm-hmm. And he may be a little extreme. He, he may be a little extreme. It's but, not for everybody. Right. <laughs> but I think there is something there to the idea of not surrounding yourself with yes men because I think what happens going back to like Elon Musk is that the when you become very famous when you become a billionaire people assume that you're brilliant and everything you say is right yes. and you surround yourself with people and people are scared to tell you because they don't want you to fire them and also right. because they're like well who am I to tell this brilliant person so people who are truly smart do surround themselves with people who will challenge them. And I think this is a problem. You see this in finance. You see this in a lot of businesses where people just surround themselves. The more successful they come, the more they surround themselves with people who think exactly like they do. Yeah. And I think I think it's I think it's a twofold problem. As you just said, it's a it's a two way problem. Problem number one is people sort of look at them as if they're sort of magical. Right. And so they just assume if they disagree with the person, something the person has said, they assume that they're wrong, not not that, say, Elon Musk is wrong. And so they just sort of mm-hmm. like bury whatever they have to say underneath it. And then the other issue is that for someone who has become very successful, it doesn't feel good not to take full credit for it, right? Like what feels really good? Like, look at how brilliant I am. And I'm so smart and successful because it was all of my decision making and all these other poor people who haven't been able to have the success as I, it's because they're not as smart or they're not as good decision makers. And I think it's really hard to resist that kind of thinking. And, And I actually say this like in little ways. If I'm trying to get your opinion on something political. And I say to you, hey, I read this really interesting opinion piece and I think it's totally dead on. Will you read it too and tell me what you think? The chances that I'm going to get an honest opinion from you are very small now because I've already told you what my opinion on the piece is. And And you may not even know you're doing it. You may just read it from the frame of, oh, Annie said she really likes it and now you're sort of reading it that way as well. Whereas if I said to you about the exact same piece. I read this piece and I think it's idiotic. Will you read it too and tell me your opinion? I'm likely to get feedback that agrees with me either way. And I'm not Elon Musk. Like I'm not as successful as Elon Musk. So when he's saying things, 
I talk about it in the book as an infection, right? Like you can infect people with your beliefs. You can infect people with your opinions. You can infect people with your predictions, like the way that you think you should be doing, you know, implementing strategy, whatever it might be, merely by expressing your opinion before getting theirs. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I want to have one last question here about the broader implications of this. And I think Anna touched on this when she talked about Ray Dalio. On one level, you can see how this is a good thing. And on another level, you can see how it's an incredibly damaging thing. And there was this fascinating story which came out recently about like billionaires buying bolt holes in New Zealand. And on a kind of probabilistic level, you can see how this is a very rational thing to do. That you like, you know that the it, once you've reached that billionaire status, you know that the biggest threat to you and your lifestyle is some kind of massive global calamity, catastrophe. And the best way to deal with that low probability outcome is to have this, you know, private jet which will whisk you to New Zealand where you have a bunker and, you know, all of this kind of stuff, which they are actually doing. And they are buying up this property and they are building these bolt holes. And you can kind of see how, like, you know, in 98% of the outcomes, states of the world, they're fine. And then in 2%, they're not fine. So they're, they're hedging that 2%. On the other hand, this is deeply problematic on a sort of societal level. And you don't want the people who have that much sort of power and influence in society to be able to hedge themselves against that. You want them to be working against those kind of outcomes. Well, couldn't you do both, though? I mean, yeah. like, couldn't you say that, like, look, I, if you're incredibly wealthy, if you factor in the amount of money you're actually spending on this thing, you're like, eh, this actually could make sense. But that doesn't mean you're still not going to try to reduce the likelihood of thermonuclear war. I, I don't think that you necessarily have to do just one or the other. No, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's completely binary. But but Emily, would you not agree that there's something like morally a little bit weird about this? That, that when you read that article, you kind of think, ick. And he's setting me up to agree with him. Did you? <laughs> For um, sure. I mean, I read it and I thought, first I thought maybe this was a good idea, but then I wondered if all the cool millionaires, it, first it's billionaires, but now it's like millionaires are doing it too, like hedging that if there's an apocalypse, they can move to New Zealand. And at, at what point, if there's like a mass of these like millionaires planning this, that it the whole thing just falls apart because it's not a good plan anymore if everyone's going to do it. But then I do think it is a little sad and sketchy that like the nation's wealthiest and most successful people aren't going to like go down with the ship I guess or that's their plan but this and then is the, this is the, the third thing I thought was like strategy, right? the third thing I thought was like fuck these people exactly. like the guy who had there was one of the rich guys who had um, in his garage he has <laughs> it's so stupid he has a motorcycle with like a bag of guns and money or something so that he can like zip through the traffic to get to his jet and I was like you know what when 
when things go down and the apocalypse is here and literally his plan was like taking into account there will be zombies. He's like, so I can (laughs) get around the cars and the zombies. I was like, he's just going to get eaten by the zombies. And I've watched enough apocalypse, like apocalypse porn and zombie movies and TV shows to know that like rich people don't get out alive during the apocalypse. So it's all moot to me. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So, yeah. So I, 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 First of all, I'm kind of on your. I'm like, if it's it's a dollar to them, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. so it's a dollar to them. Like, they're it's. Would you pay a dollar to have a, you know, a backup plan in case everything goes to crap? And in fact, but, I do sometimes pay a dollar in the other direction. I pay a dollar to buy a lottery ticket for like that crazy. Right, which is mm-hmm. by the way, yeah, which is. It's that, at least they own a piece of property. By the way, <laughs> you have a piece of paper. I'm that's buying worth a dream. <laughs> but actually, let me let me just sort of bring it to. I think this is something where we get very caught up in the details, and when we take away the details, we can kind of see the decision a little bit better. So I could make an argument that there's lots of people in blue states who are saying that you know what's happening in red states is so awful, and these people aren't. You know, they need to be exposed to different ideas, and someone needs to go in and fix this. And but they're but these people ha- are living in a red uh, blue state and very often they've moved from a red state to get to a blue state where they're living among people that they feel more comfortable with because they feel like for that person the apocalypse has kind of already <laughs> happened in the red state that they used to live in right like i mean and, and vice versa by the way there's there's people who are were, were living in blue states and they're just not happy being around you know the libs, and so now they've moved to a red state. I mean, on a small scale, it's very similar. And then we can think about in very dire circumstances that there have been cases where there's horrible things happening in a country, and there are people who left. They did not stay and try to fix it and try to fight it. And aren't we kind of happy that they did, that they took that? Now, I understand this feels a little bit different because it's people with a lot of money saying, oh, if the economy kind of collapses or whatever happens, like I want to be in New Zealand which is a really good place to be. But we can sort of think about it and what what's the overall decision that you're making? And in little ways, every single day, I think all of us make a similar decision. So I have this principle I think about quite a lot called Chesterton's fence, which is like, if you think that something's stupid, you don't just get rid of it until you understand why it's there. And one of the things that I see in society in pretty much every society in the history of the planet is that it they all deeply reward belief they deeply they they admire and reward people who believe strongly in something even if they don't mm-hmm. know for a fact that it's true and your book is basically saying this is a silly thing to do don't believe strongly in things without like having any rational reason to do so and and there's a big tension there and so i guess my question for you is like why does every society on the planet deeply reward this behavior if it's not a good behavior? Well, because it 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 used to be a good behavior. And I think that in some cases, even today, it is a good behavior. So you can think about there's all sorts of ways in which you can think about the history of humanity as, as like being evolution and then engineering, right? Where evolution is like molding who we are, who we're becoming, and then human beings have engineering and they can engineer their environment. And now the environment is changing in a way that we can't, we're not adapting to as quickly as the environment is changing. So like a good example of this would be uh, 
the uh, obesity epidemic, right? It used to be that like there was fat and sugar around, eat it because you might starve and die. And that was great. Like we wanted to have eat fat and sugar as much as we possibly could. But now because of engineering, because we've been able to engineer the world, there like fat and sugar is on every corner every second of the day. And it's very hard for our animal brains to say, let's not eat that every second of the day. Um, so we just haven't caught up. So if we think about this tribalism, right? So it used to be it was me and my kin and the people who were related to us. And we were going to survive better because we were going to band together. And we were going to band together against intruders that were trying to take our resources. And at the time, that was great for survival. It really helped us survive. And, and what it did was it created this real drive toward tribalism. And what tribalism gives us is, first of all, belongingness, belongingness to a group. Also distinctiveness, distinctiveness from another group. But it gives us two things that actually are really important but are, are to the point of what you're saying, epistemic closure. So what it means is it tells you what to believe. It tells you what is true and false with certainty. And part of that is that you don't question it, right? And we can see this in in um, religions as well, that if you, que- you know, the act of questioning Apostasy. belief in God, right, exactly, is heresy. Um, you should take it as a matter of faith. And this is true in uh, uh, any kind of tribalism. And we're seeing this kind of in politics, right? Like the act of questioning uh, the leader or what the prevailing opinion is, is 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 sort of violating the sacrament, right? So, um, and then you also have moral closure as well. It tells you what is moral and what isn't. And we're kind of built for that because it was good for us to band into tribes and that helped us survive. But now, there, you know, it's like well, we've got this really big issue because we're like really big and it, it, it's like it's like there's too much sugar and fat around. Yeah, and I, I think... It also goes back to this idea of extremes is that to a certain extent, having beliefs that are a little irrational can potentially be good. If you're an entrepreneur, chances are you're going to fail, but you can't possibly succeed if you every day are just like, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. But some of the better entrepreneurs probably do have a part of them that says, look, what are the things that would lead me to fail? And then tries to counter them. So it's a little bit of both. Well, so actually, I think this brings up a really good point, which is that what I talk about is people confuse certainty and confidence. So what they think is that in order to be confident, I must be certain. I must be certain of the things that I believe. I must be certain that I'm going to succeed, for example. But actually, they're two totally different things. You can actually be very confident and be uncertain at the same time Mm -hmm. in the same way that you did. Well, I've done the plan and I've seen what all the scenarios are and I've actually really explored all of the downside scenarios. So now I'm going to be nimble because I've actually examined all the ways that I think that I could fail. I've sort of put a percentage to them. I've tried to figure out contracts that I can implement to make sure that I don't fall into traps that I can sort of foresee in the future. I've got action plans around those. I know what I'm going to do if those bad things happen. And I can say this all with real confidence. And I could say, so I'm starting this company and I think that 30% of the time I'm going to succeed and 70% of the time I'm going to fail. So I know most of the time I'm going to fail, but I know the payoff is enough. And I know that I have increased the probability as much as I possibly can. Notice I just said all of that with great confidence. But I think that we mash the two things together and we think we have to know for sure. It's the it's the trader mindset, which is strong opinions, weekly held. It's, exactly. it's like every successful trader 
deeply believes in whatever position they have right now, even if it's incredibly contrarian and the entire market believes the other thing. But then they all have some kind of trigger which will make them mm -hmm. believe the exact opposite right. opposite thing overnight. And it's kind right. of it's it's very rare to find mm -hmm. that. But when you see it, like you can make a lot of money. Yeah, I am um, right. I, and it allows you to be decisive. Mm -hmm. I can make this trade because at this moment in time, given the evidence that I have and the analytics that I have done, I believe this is the best trade I can be making right and now. And this is this is also, I mean, it's a poker thing that you can be playing a poker hand and you can be pretty sure that you have the best hand and then your opponent does something and you're like, oh, oh shit, maybe I don't have the <laughs> best hand. Oh, wait a minute. I actually, I actually had an experience like this. One of my most memorable hands is a hand that I won. It's in this like, ooh, I played that really badly, but I won. <laughs> so it was a hand where um, I had raised bef before, you know, the the community cards came down and, and this person had played in such a way where when the cards came down, I was really, really pretty sure that they just had like an ace with kind of a bad card with it. So they had a pair of aces with a bad card with it. I had a hand where I had nothing. I had king high. But if I happened to hit exactly a jack, I would have the best possible hand. So uh, the guy just bet. I, I called him. And then on the next card, which did not was not a jack, it didn't help me, he bet. And I thought, well, I know that he doesn't have a very good hand here. He just has an ace with kind of a bad card. So I'm going to raise him, not because I thought I was going to hit a jack, but just because I thought he would fold. So I raised him. And he. I have never seen someone call me so fast. <laughs> and I just went, oh, well, that was a very bad move on my part. <laughs> no. I, I hit a jack on the last card. I knocked the the this poor person out of the tournament, but he actually flipped his hand over and he did have the hand that I thought he had. He had an ace with a bad card. And I'd gone really wrong. Where I'd gone really wrong was I hadn't been watching him closely enough because he had done enough things at the table that should have told me that, yes, he would call very quickly with that hand. But I was just sort of going off, oh, this is what people normally do. And I hadn't actually updated. And I was just like, oh, no, what did I just do? And I still remember this hand as one of my worst moments in poker and it was one of the biggest pots i've ever won awesome okay let's have a numbers round emily what's your number okay don't be mad you guys but it's three numbers all related <laughs> oh good because mine's a ratio which has two numbers <laughs> okay so it's 20 million 40 million and 90 million and these are the respective alleged net worths of chris pratt no chris pine is 20 million chris pratt 40 million and 90 million is chris Hemsworth. And that is according to this website called CelebrityNetWorth.com. Now, this is the New York Times article, this is right? Yes. I got this all from a New York Times article about this website, which is um, it's taken as gospel all around the Internet that these numbers of celebrity net worth are accurate. Like they get picked up in Forbes and other websites. Not, I don't think on mine, but who knows? And um, they're just basically out of thin air. So I recommend this article came out like a week ago. Um, I just recommend taking a look at it. And, okay, and, and I want to say that we are going to have a slate, a very awesome slate plus segment on this number. So we will say no more about this number. But I'm going to ask how this relates to poker. Um, Anna, so my number is two oh one thirty nine. It's not 20,139. No, no, it's two hours, one minute, and 39 seconds. 
Oh, that's the marathon. It is. Oh, oh yeah. that's right. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Elliot Kipchoge. He killed, killed the world record in I Berlin. I was like, what? He sprinted the yep. whole thing. Wow. It's, it was crazy. And I, I bring this up, A, because it's another awesome thing for Nike happening recently. <laughs> yes. um, and also, he is someone who's like really into his mental game. That is something he talks about, I something he really that. focuses on, and mm. clearly paid off. Uh, my I, number is... $446 million, which is um, the asking price for a pretty normal-looking four-bedroom house on a third of an acre, um, which, and it's like, where is this house? If you like, There's only one place this house could be. It's on the peak in Hong Kong. And it's, wow. that land is so valuable, and the positional importance of of living on the peak means like you you see this house and this house would cost probably 750,000 if it was in Florida and it's the asking price is 446 million that's insane okay here's my number well it's my numbers cuz I'm like you it's my number <laughs> welcome Fif- uh 1517 versus 535 and this is, if anybody saw the um, Christopher Clary article that was in the New York Times also, comparing the number of uh, fines given for men versus women and Grand Slam events, which he then went on to declare, this proves that there's no sexism. Tear it apart, Annie. Okay. <laughs> I, thank you. Yep. And then Glenn Greenwald chimed in like, ha ha, you see, there is no sexism. Okay. My head exploded. <laughs> Uh, because I talk all the time about you need the reference class. Yep. I'm going to go with Gerd, yep. Gerd Gigerenzer, right? Like the percent of what? So I, what does this mean? Like, first Nothing. of all, in Grand Slams, I'm pretty sure that men are on the court a lot longer than women because they have to play best of five instead of best of three. So this isn't even per minute played. Mm-hmm. And then like you could take like the obscenity, right? So it's like three to one. They get more fines for obscenities than women. But what you need to know is how many obscenities do they utter? So because you could see a situation where the men are getting fined for 30 percent of their obscenities and the women are getting fined for 100 percent of their obscenities. Mm -hmm. It's just women don't say them very often. And then there was one number in there where women are getting fined a little bit more for coaching than men. But again, that doesn't tell us anything because we don't know how often it's available for actually getting fined. And sort of going back to this problem of, you know, Donald Trump wins the election and everybody goes, you're wrong. It's like we have a problem in America with thinking probabilistically because everybody looked at these raw numbers and they were like, ha ha, it's proof. Actually, men are the ones being discriminated against. Please say no such thing. So anyway, I had to have my Thank rant preached. Yes, yeah. yes, we all agree. We, you have told us what to think, and you are right. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, what I know is that this these numbers don't actually tell you anything. They don't prove it either way. Um, so that's it for the show. But we are going. I'm going to ask Annie in Slate Plus about the net worth of poker players. This is something I'm, I'm kind of interested in. Um, otherwise, thank you for listening to Slate Money. Keep the emails coming at slatecom Thanks to Max Jacobs for producing, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Money. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.